Welcome to Before You Go. I'm Nicole Franklin. And I'm Bryant Monte. And Nicole, we get to meet an author today, and she's in her 90s. Just a typical self-published <laughs> author and lifelong educator who wrote right. her first memoir and released it just last year. Way to go, Mary Othella Burnett. Miss Burnett is the author of Lies of the Black Walnut Tree, Growing Up Black in Southern Appalachia. Now, before Juneteenth received its notoriety, there was the Great Surrender. And in Southern Appalachia, Black mountaineers had their own culture, dialect, and means of finding their freedom. I spoke with author Mary Othella Burnett and learned even more about our American story. Let's talk about when you were born, Miss Burnett. What's the year and date? Well, I was born in 1931. Uh, we were right in the the Great Depression. I mean, we were poor to begin with. And then when the Depression came, we were poorer. Oh. And you went from you went from nothing to less. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, we, we had land and we could grow our own food. So we didn't have to worry about soup lines because there weren't any. Yes, everyone, Miss Burnett grew up in the South Appalachia and she wrote a book. This is why I'm so excited today. She is an author and we're talking a <clears throat> recent publication. The book is called Lige of the Black Walnut Tree, Growing Up Black in Southern Appalachia. So that's why, yeah, her family actually owned a lot of the land. I guess you guys were the primary landowners in this area, it seems like. Um, well, in, in the mountains, you know, uh, you, you don't own a mountain. Right. <laughs> so you own a, a patch of land on the side of a mountain or the foot of a mountain, and you try to get, if you possibly can, you try to get near a stream. Mm. Otherwise, you're going to have to dig a well. You're, you're out in the open. I mean, there's nothing out there. There, there. There's no rental property. There's nothing. But, but you and the land and the trees and the animals. And that's where we lived. Of course, by the time I came along, um, most of the animals had gone farther back into the woods because men had guns and they knew how to use them. So, uh, and the, the, mountain, women, the women knew how to use the guns too, correct? Oh, oh yes. My mother yeah. knew. Yeah. And, and I very much learned how to use the gun. So, yeah. So, and the mountain people, um, they like bear meat. So oh. the bears stayed back in, in, in the woods. So I read in your book uh, where you said we've been in the Southern Appalachians of Western North Carolina around 300 years or more. And that's because you actually have a direct connection to those who are enslaved in the area or near the area. Three of my grandparents were born into slavery. The fourth one was born free because his mother was Cherokee. And she went into the black community to, to escape from being shipped out uh, with uh, in a trail of tears. Yes, well, let's, let's cover that now. Um, everyone, uh, I apologize um, here up in front. We have so much to go over in this book <laughs> that we will not get to. So I'm gonna encourage everyone to pick up their copy of Lies of the Black Walnut Tree by Mary Othella Burnett, because this is so rich. Um, and I'm gonna be bouncing around a bit, but I'm so excited. 
first, let's talk about, before we get directly to your family, let's talk about how, yes, there was a large Indian population who had to hide because that trail of tears and a lot of oppression was coming up. They actually hid with Black people, integrated with Black people for that purpose of survival. The only safe place for them to be was with Black people. Mm -hmm. Nobody was driving Black people anywhere. They were needed for labor. The Native Americans land was desired and the government was going to take the land. They, they found out about that. And many of them be, began to uh, escape into the black community. They married whoever they could marry, uh, even a slave they would marry. Mm. And the, yeah, and, and my, in my grandparents, great grandparents case, um, the slave master uh, Mills allowed my great grandfather to, to marry this Native American woman. Well, you know, this is common knowledge. You married by slave law if you were in this, it was something um, amounting to stepping over a broom. Like it became so common that some uh, young African Americans use that method of stepping over a broom. Mm-hmm. But after the Civil War, those law, uh, those marriages were null and void. Mm. So they were free to marry someone else, or they could remarry by civil law. And this is what my great grandparents chose to do. After 21 years apart, I mean, that is loyalty. That is loyalty. After 21 years apart, and they I can came imagine. back together and remarried. I can imagine for many couples, it was a bit messy <laughs> if they chose to. Well, even my, yeah, even, even my, my grandfather went through it and he, uh, he had married a slave woman and had one child by her. I don't know why he chose not to remarry her. I never learned that, but he, um, he remarried, uh, he married my grandmother. This woman was not my grandmother. That was his first wife. He was a young man. I imagine it had something to do with his um, serving the Union Army during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether the slave master remarried her to somebody else. I, I never found that out. But he did not remarry her. He, he married my grandmother. The nature of slavery obviously was to divide families, but then of course we had situation where there were interpersonal relationships that were either ruined or um, survived this uh, horrible, uh, again, oppressive nature of dividing families. So um, it affected the census records and you actually wrote uh, by 1880, at least 24 African-American families had settled in the Black Mountain North Fork area and 15 of those 24 families were my blood relatives. So this is why I say exactly. they were all over <laughs> the, the mountain. A lot of it was your families. I mean, oh, my, I, my, my grandfather's brothers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one, one, a brother and his wife and their children, that would be a family, but they're all part of the same family. Yes. So Nicole, as often as we see couples jumping the broom, the history of what happened to many of the early marriages when slavery ended gets lost. Did you know about this? About marriages being nullified? I had no idea. I would say it's one more reason for reparations though. 
We have more from author Mary Othella Burnett. Your book um, in some parts reads like a mystery novel. In some parts <laughs> reads uh, like a crime novel. Um, mm -hmm. I love when you talk about growing up, having to go through certain tests that your father and your brothers made sure you went through to make sure you could survive on your own. So we'll get to those in a minute, but I want to kind of start with your ancestral story. And can we start with Lonnie Mills? Lonnie Mills was the, was the um, African slave who married uh, my Cherokee great-grandmother. Mm -hmm. He was what was known as a trustee. A trustee could have a pass. You could give him a pass and tell him he can go out and work and earn money. Mm. I'm sure I'm sure Grandpa Lonnie did earn money to help support his family. But he's producing this big free black family. Mm. They, they have six kids and another one on the way. And uh, uh, free black people were never wanted mm. in a slave society. There's no use for them. It's, right. a, it's amazing that they survived, that they found work to do. Work is being done by slaves. So on one of these trips, he supposedly vanished. Mm. His children were told that the Indians had killed him. Mm -hmm. This is what was passed down to me. And I, I, I don't know, it's something about it didn't ring true. My mother was telling me two different stories as if they don't count, you know? She, she would tell me, yeah, the Indians killed him. And then she would tell me, but this um, elderly white woman in Asheville told me that my grandfather, a full-blooded African, was sold on the block in the county seat. That would have been Asheville, North Carolina. Mm. But mama, don't. You can't have both of these stories. They can't both be right. Okay. She didn't question, you know, she didn't question either one of them. But um, years later, when, when I started to write, I called a Cherokee historian over in Oklahoma. I guess I was in Southern California. And the, the, the uh, Oklahoma Cherokees, they were, you know, writing histories and and making sure their children learn the language and, and they're studying the history. I, I don't think the North Carolina Indians were doing so much, mm -hmm. but I called this man over, over in Oklahoma and he thought that perhaps it was true that the Cherokees had killed my grandfather, great grandfather. He said, uh, well, yeah, they, uh, they saw this, this African who was free to marry a Cherokee woman and, and, and have children by her while they were having to hide and, and something like they were jealous, you know, that made sense too. Mm. But then um, I had a younger cousin who started doing research and he said, you know, no, uh, our great grandfather came back and remarried our great grandmother. I found a, a marriage certificate and right. he sent me a copy. You can't have it both ways. Yeah, you can't be dead and get married. <laughs> no, you can't be dead and get married. No. All right. The mystery is that the story did not go through the family. Mm. I think my mother died believing that the Cherokees had um, murdered her 
her grandfather, although it certainly didn't turn her against the Cherokees. She loved them. Mm -hmm. Who was the midwife? Was that your grandmother or great-grandmother? That is my paternal grandmother. She was born on the steppe plantation in 1858. Um, her mother was the plantation midwife and herb doctor. So she learned that trade from her mother mm -hmm. and they were the midwives. Um, we, we knew of no white midwives and they delivered both white and black babies that made no difference to them. A baby was going to be born. If they were sent for, they were going to be there. And people have heard of, um, is it midwifery? Is that the correct people? Midwifery. In, midwifery, yeah. They've heard of this, but I don't know if they're aware that you have to walk four miles alone. And um, one of your relatives described how she would leave articles of clothing whenever she heard like a box. That's my, that was my, my grandmother. Yeah. She uh, yeah, would, she, because she, um, there were trails going across the mountains, not even wagon roads in some cases. And she'd have to go way back in the mountains uh, to deliver a baby. Everybody knew everybody, black or white. They knew. Um, and they knew them by name and they knew where they lived. So she would go back into the mountains and the, these people didn't have money. My grandmother knew they weren't going to have any money. You just go deliver the baby. Get something if you can. But you deliver that baby and make sure that it's, the baby is safe. Yes. So she goes back in the, into the mountains, delivers this baby, and, and they give her a big, it's a, what they call hog killing time. That means the weather's cold because people don't have refrigerators, ma'am. They don't know, they, they don't have no refrigerators. They don't even have an icebox. Mm. So you wait until the weather is very cold before you kill, you butcher your animals and you hang up the meat up to cure in a, in a, in a room somewhere where there's there's air to come in to get the meat. Anyway, she's coming home with a slab of fresh meat. And this catamount smells that meat and starts to uh, stalk her. Mm. And uh, my grandmother, uh, she knows she cannot run this animal. So they wore a lot of clothing, several petticoats, as they called them. Like, and, uh, several uh, whiskets, this, the, all the, and these clothes had to, uh, had to be made by hand. And you've got a bonnet and, and you, an apron and you start pulling off the outer garments and throwing them down and that animal will pick up your scent mm. and he will stop. Now he's pitch black, but that's no problem for a mountaineer. He can see his way home. This animal stops and tears that uh, garment to shreds and that gives you a little more time to run wow it, it's it's almost unbelievable it's a great lesson for me to know <laughs> you know leave a scent for any animal right <laughs> whatever well yeah they're, they're, coming, they're, they're coming back because people with money now are coming into the mountains and they, they're buying patches of land in the mountains where no one has ever lived before. Oh. And they're disturbing the animals and the animals um, are living, leaving their habitat and coming down into the community. Bears are walking the roads in my hometown today. 
And you can do nothing about it until uh, hunting season. You're using the word, there's the stalking animal, you're using the word catamount. And it's- short, Cat it's, of the mountain. Cat of the mountain. Cat of the mountain. And so this leads- It's called a catamount. To, yeah, this leads me to um, the dialect there that was spoken of um, the mountain uh, people. Um, or what do you call yourselves? Was it is it mountain people or <laughs> what? what oh, it's people? a mountain people. That's what we are, mountain people, mountaineers. Mm. We are never a black person is never a hillbilly. I can explain that for you. Please do. Okay, I didn't know this until I was studying uh, language science at Georgetown University, and I had a, a classmate there who was from West Virginia. And um, I, I said to her one day, uh, um, would, would a white person feel offended if you called him or her a hillbilly? She said, heck yes, he had sense enough to know what it meant. She said, but I am not a hillbilly. I am a Mountain William. Mountain William is an educated European American, okay? I'm so learning. black people are not European. That excludes us. So therefore, we're not going to be hillbillies and we're not going to be Mountain Williams. So where, where does that leave us as Black people? Oh, well, we're, we're, we are Black mountaineers. Black mountaineers. In the back of your book, Lies of the Black Walnut Tree, we have um, a little glossary, right? Of oh, yeah. Of mm -hmm. the terms. So is this like... Would people call this Pig Latin or a dialect? Oh, no, 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 no. It's not Pig, pig Latin. It is a major American dialect. A major American English dialect. And it's called South Midland. South Midland. Let, do you have some examples? Like I see, uh, like Witchin, Witchin is which one? Witchin's and Witchin's and Wonchi. Uh, I was studying with a, with a, a pianist in, in, in Los Angeles, and one day he said to me, Miss Burnett, do you know Huanchi? I said, of course I know Huanchi. Huanchi, why don't you? Why don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why don't you go over and help him out? Yeah, something like, um, you really dropped the W here with a thout. So without is a thout? Is that true? Is a thout. A thout? Mm -hmm. A thout. Instead of without, it's about. Let's talk about education. You went the furthest in your education, correct? Of your immediate family? I, I did. In, in my family, yes, I was the, the only one. Um, I'm not the only one to go to college. I was the only one to finish. You came out of school to plant the crops. And then you went, um, then you came out again to help gather the crops. And then you're going out for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And by the time you get to school, it's the next year. And you also write about the stark reality that some people just really couldn't make the trip to go to school when they got older, that the school was farther and farther for away. For some reason, some, for some reason, we had two disabled children in the community who got no education at all, one because no ramp was ever built for the the one who could have gotten into the classroom. Mm -hmm. No ramp was ever built for him to access the classroom. And then the other one was uh, mentally retarded. So the teachers could not have helped him. And there was no school for him to go to. 
So he, he got no education at all. There were, for some reason, um, a lot of slow learners hmm. in our community, a lot of them. And back then, they knew two ways to teach. You, you lectured and, uh, yeah, and, and you showed pictures and you showed something on the board. That's all they knew. Today, they have found at least 10 different ways to teach. Uh, but back then, they didn't know. So if you didn't learn the way the teacher knew how to teach, you failed your grade. If you can people that tired of failing. Oh, oh, and then they would drop out. Yeah, if you couldn't follow that learning style. Again, we're talking 1930s, 40s uh, here in the mountains. And um, you were in a one-room schoolhouse for the majority of oh, your- no, 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 we had three rooms. Well, three rooms, three rooms. in the one schoolhouse. Yeah. Right? And then um, was it three teachers that got you through eight grades? Is that how you described it? No, there were three teachers who got uh, got me through seven grades. Seven grades. The last one is, is the, was the most important one. He taught fifth, sixth, and seventh grade. And his favorite subject was English. Back then, of course, uh, anyone who finished college could teach English. Mm -hmm. That is no longer true. He um, he taught English as a second language, and he taught with uh, a book in his left hand, if he had one, and uh, a heavy leather strap in his right hand, which he always had. And he would ask you a question, such as I mentioned, if you didn't know the answer and you couldn't give the answer immediately, you got that strap across your back. I idolized the man. I thought he's trying to help us. He's trying to make us learn something we're going to need to know because black people were looked down on because of their inability to handle the English language. That is a fact. And he knew that. And this so is a black teacher. He's a black, you're, going, you're only gonna have a black teacher. Black teacher in an all black school, yeah. Mm -hmm. What we didn't want to do was to behave in a way that would cast a reflection on him. Right. There's a, a young black man who needs this job. Mm -hmm. And he is the best we have, we've had. We want to keep him. So we will keep our mouths shut and do what we're expected to do so that he's okay. This is how we thought as children back then. It's a lot of responsibility. A lot of responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Woo. Yeah, I want to read that um, a paragraph that um, you wrote about exactly what you just said. It's on page 200 of your book. I'm going to read that. Growing up in a segregated Southern town, I had experienced injustice only because I was Black, but I had good reason to conform. Black people were lumped together and held together by chains of racism inequalities and discrimination. Rebellion by any one of us would make things worse for everyone else, especially my parents. They were poor and didn't have money to pay a lawyer who probably wouldn't win the case anyway. Black children learned early to accept injustice, to protect their community, their family, their parents. If one black person misbehaved, it was believed to be typical of all black people. Good behavior, they believed, was the exception. Wherever ever I was, 
if I was in a uh, predominantly white group to watch my behavior, because if I did something wrong, all of my people would be blamed for it. Let's now get into colorism. <laughs> okay. The light complected and the dark complected. First, let's oh, start dear. with the, the two sides of your family. You had the Burnetts, who were dark mm -hmm. complected, and then the very light black. and the the <laughs> very black and the light <laughs> the lighter complected ones were the. Well, I had them on three sides actually. Okay. Uh, the step plantation. Some, uh, an older Burnett relative told my mother that um, there were nine women, slave women on the step plantation. And this is step, anyone who looks it up, step is S-T-E-P-P. S-C-E-P-P, sometimes it's C-E-P-P-E. -E. Mm -hmm. um, this man uses these women as mistresses. All, all except one. He allows this one woman to have a black husband. Hmm. And we knew this family. Um, I even mentioned him, uh, the, one of the descendants of that family uh, in Miss Eula, the teacher, how she persecuted that student. And I did not like it because I did not like what she was doing because um, he was, uh, his uh, grandmother or great-grandmother was on the plantation with my grandmother and great-grandmother. Yes. And so there was that horrible, um, big, huge part of slavery that they're making um, more workers, you know? Exactly. More enslaved uh, population through that, other than the fact that they felt they could rape the women because they felt they could. So um, a lot of that was blending into your family line. There were people who thought that, you know, they were better because their skin was lighter. Of course, that happened. And you even had, not, this didn't happen so much in our neighborhood, but we heard about it. These, these houses where they, they might have a party or an entertainment, and they would tack a brown bag up uh, beside the door. If your skin was darker than that brown paper bag, you didn't get in. Now see, that I was so surprised to read that in your book because, and this sounds terrible, but I thought that was only a Louisiana thing. <laughs> no, it's not on it. No. <laughs> so. It might have been very much in Louisiana, but, uh, but I, I heard about it, and I don't think I was hearing about Louisiana. It was right there in, in your neck. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you recall the story of when um, one of your relatives came over and you thought he looked handsome in his black suit and he had dark skin and you said, oh, you're black all over. And that brought- he, It was my, my brother-in-law. He was my brother-in-law. He stopped by the house one Sunday um, after church. And I thought he was, was so good looking. You see, my father told me, your skin is supposed to be black. He told me, it's, it's, a, it's nothing to be proud of that your skin is not black. Mm -hmm. We are from black Africa. Mm -hmm. Our people are black. And the way we got this lighter skin is nothing to be proud of. He told me that when I was a child. Mm -hmm. I used to stand and look in the mirror and think, gee, I wish my skin was black. I would be better looking if I were black, if my skin was black. Yeah, I thought that. Mm -hmm. And anybody with very black skin, I thought was just absolutely beautiful. But then, now, I'm kind, I was kind of out there by myself in that thinking, but that's how I thought. 
Right, because as soon as you said it, you got pulled into another room to get a whooping for it, right? Right. Yeah, calling him black. Oh, that's awful. I thought I was paying him a compliment. Yeah. Oh, and that was your mother that did that? That, that was my mother, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so she was very conscious, color conscious, and didn't want um, any of that to come out in the open, I guess. We can never, I mean, it's always such a touchy subject um, amongst the relatives when you find out quickly with who. Yeah, my, yeah. my father was, uh, um, my father always said black. He didn't say colored, he didn't say Negro. He I thought that black. was interesting that he said mm -hmm. black and we're talking the 1910, 20s, 30s. Exactly. Term black. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have the mountaineers, the black mountaineers, and then we have outsiders. Sometimes outsiders came in as the educators, as the teachers. And I just thought it was uh, pretty cool that you all grew up learning spirituals. You learned lift every voice and sing very early in your life. First grade. First grade. I love that. All three verses. All three verses. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Stand up and sing it. And then, um, but that was taught by an outsider, you said. Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. uh, someone who would have heard it um, probably in, in the deeper South. Black teachers could not teach Black. They were not free to teach Black history. They Excuse were not. Me? Excuse me? <laughs> Why not? Why not? They don't want you to know your history. They don't want you to know if, you did, if you've done anything good, if your people have done anything good. How would they be reported? Simply this, a child happens to go home and say, we learned so-and-so in class today. Mm -hmm. And this goes uptown to the woman the mother works for. Wow. Simply that. Yeah. And again, we're talking, it could mean death, right? So let's talk about the multi-page uh, journey that you had when your father sent you for water. In the, what time was it? It was, it was dark. It, that it was, was probably out. around, <laughs> yeah, it was probably around eight o'clock at night, maybe eight, maybe even seven. It got dark in the mountains and you didn't have any street lights. I mean, no there were no lights, out, no lights outside the house. We did have electricity at the time because I remember that light from the kitchen flashing across the back porch and then across the backyard. And that was the last light I saw when well, I went had, down the hill. He had the flashlight and a gun. He's got the flashlight and the gun. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it says, you now go get me uh, you know, uh, a drink of water um, with the bucket. Which and I don't think he wanted. <laughs> <laughs> right. We don't even know if he drank it, but he sent you to, and how far away was this? Because I mean, it took you pages to yeah, get about there. an eighth of a mile, about an eighth of a mile. You, you got to go down the field and you got to cross yeah. a little stream and go across a meadow and down under a clump of trees. It yeah, gets it's darker. Pitch, it's pitch dark and you had to know where in the stream to get the water that's drinkable. You had to know all and this. It's stuff. not a stream. It's a... Uh, it's a spring, a spring that he has walled in, in uh, blue slate rock, and you have to know how to go down. You go down a step, turn to your right. You can't see. Turn to your right. Walk over to the mouth of the spring and dip your bucket in. Mm -hmm. But you've done this so many times. You you know your brain tells you where you are. But that's in the day and at night. There was a threat 
everything felt like a threat the way you wrote it. <laughs> yeah, you're thinking about everything. You don't know, well, snakes go in the holes at night. They don't crawl around at night. But you're, you're scared because you've seen them doing during the day. And of course, you've got to figure out how to get across the stream. There's no bridge there. There's just uh, maybe a couple of big rocks in the middle of the spring, uh, in the middle of the stream, and you've got to step on those rocks so you're in the water. Right. So you couldn't fall in the water. That would have been extremely dangerous. And who knows? No, it wouldn't could. have been dangerous. It would have been a bit uncomfortable. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the water was not that deep. It would have been uncomfortable. Yeah. But you made it back and we have no idea if Papa drank the water. <laughs> I don't think he drank it. But I, he I didn't see him drink any of yeah, I, I don't even think he said thank you. I just felt that I was so pleased that I had. <laughs> I was so pleased that I had been able to do what he, he told me to do and that I pretended not to be a coward. Yes. Of course, I was afraid. I've never how, been out in the dark by myself. How old were you then? About five years old. Mind you, he doesn't call one of my brothers. I'm sitting in the, in the living room with the two brothers watching, listening, watching, listening to the radio. Yeah. Um, and he calls me. He doesn't call the boys. He doesn't yeah. need to give the boys this lesson. They will survive. It was safe for you me thought. to be out there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, well, it was safe. Nothing bothered me. But um, it, it was a scary time. It was terrifying for me to read it. You see, the race of it in the, in the mountains was not like racism in Mississippi. How so? It's it's milder. Oh. It's milder. If, if, if a white man attacked a black man, he's going to fight back. Mm -hmm. He's not afraid to fight back, and they did. And there yeah. was there was some justice. I mean, and there's not. Racial justice is still isn't, but there is some justice. When you say the um, they weren't afraid to fight back to the white man, we're talking um, fist fighting because, or did they have- you talk, You're talking fist fighting or if they can get away with, with the shooting. But there's no hesitation about defending yourself. No, no, no hesitation about defending yourself. Now they did not oppose uh, Jim Crow laws. They did not protest. But an individual against an individual, there would be a, a, an equal fight. Hmm. We knew nothing about, I heard of a hanging, uh, a lynching in Asheville, but I never heard of a lynching in my hometown. Hmm. Never. I never heard of a Ku Klux Klan, although I'm sure they were there. Mm -hmm. They uh, they didn't come out and raid our farms in March. They didn't do it. Well, again, your family was a large part of the population there. And what would we define as your hometown? What would the name of it be? It's Black Mountain. It's named for the mountain. Black Mountain. Um, the mountain, the shrubs, the dark pines. Yeah, it's named for the mountain. Not as I've heard from the train station. That would be foolish. <laughs> yeah. The I mountain agree. came before the train station. I agree. I was wanting to go back to what I thought um, caught my attention. The way you described the Emancipation Proclamation being brought to town as the great surrender. 
Not the Emancipation Proclamation. That's two different things. Now, my my grandmother remembers hearing the Emancipation Proclamation read to her family. Yes. Uh, she's five years old, so she tells me, and Mammy took us and left that place, but I don't think she did, Granny, because Grandpa, who was 11 years older than my grandmother, told my mother that he was 16 years old at the surrender, and that's when they were freed. Now, you wouldn't have had one plantation freed uh, in 1863 and another freed in 1865. That, did, that wouldn't happen. So we're thinking she was five years old around 1865 hearing this? I think she was five years old around 1863. And I think that she actually left around uh, when she was seven years old. Okay. So the, she heard the Emancipation Proclamation being read on the steps there of, of their house, their plantation? or It's a cabin on, on the plantation. It's cabin. a little cabin, probably right. a little log cabin. Yeah. But they weren't free to go for the another two years. No, okay. they just ignored it. Yeah, they ignored. And it. and this is common knowledge that they ignored it unless there were Union troops uh, on hand to enforce it. There you go. Now, Miss Burnett did not hear the word Juneteenth until 1965. She grew up in the era of the Great Surrender as being that go signal for her family and others to leave the plantation. Now, when you think about it, Nicole, where would they go? And that's the question I think most people have. Now, this is all they knew. That's something a lot of people don't think about. Yes, and unlike people who did not find out about the emancipation until years later, they had the news. Right. And they didn't leave until two years later. More from the author of Lies of the Black Walnut Tree. Here is Mary Othella Burnett reading her recollection of her grandmother learning enslaved persons were free. She always remembered hearing the Emancipation Proclamation being read to her, her sister Margaret, and great-grandma Hannah, the plantation midwife and herb doctor read by a man seated on a horse. And I could sense the pride in Granny's voice when she'd tell me how her mother, uh, Granny called her Mammy, took us and left that place. That's what Granny called the plantation, that place of slavery, she recalled. No tales of horror or cruelty to herself, but clearly had no sweet memories of it either. The emancipation paper had been read, but black people still in slavery didn't have a church bell of their own to ring. And if they had one, they would have needed permission to go and ring it. No feasting on that day. The hand that held the keys to the larder was the hand that controlled the chains of bondage. A deathly stillness clinging about the big house could mean only one thing, a broken-hearted people would languish in solemn servitude for more than two years longer. Because they uh, that was read in January of 1863, and the surrender did not happen until uh, April 9th, uh, two years later. Amazing, amazing. When did you write this book? So I started writing in about 2012. Yeah. 
and you self-published, correct? Self-published because, you know, I'm nobody knows me. So, you know, if you're Barack Obama or you're somebody who's famous, then somebody will grab your book and, and pay you some money to, to publish. But if you're unknown, uh, you self-publish. But, you know, you've been in the New York Times in a bunch of publications and radio interviews. Yeah, I have. <laughs> I have. So self-publishing yeah. does. I'm just glad people, yeah, I'm glad people are reading it because this is a piece of history that people just don't know about. What advice would you give someone who needs to get started, you know, that they want to do the same thing? Maybe even um, they have some storytelling chops like you. Uh, but also want to preserve this history. What advice would you give um, these well, that's, people? That's what you do. You take, you know, you take an event like uh, like going to get a, a bucket of water for my for my dad, and you explain this to somebody who has never done anything like this, mm. and then you put this into a bigger picture. Why would my dad have done something like this? My daughter said, and she's the only one who has said that. That was cruelty. No, it was not cruelty. He was trying to teach me something. Yeah. And I think I got the lesson. Lodge of the Black Walnut Tree. The history of this Western North Carolina mountain from the talented author, Mary Othella Burnett. Yes, history personified. And that's what we love here at Before You Go. Thank you for tuning in and share with us the elders in your circles who would make great guests. Drop us a line here at BeforeYouGo.tv. That's BeforeYouGo.tv. And maybe they'll appear on our podcast. And before we go, we want to remind everyone that stories like these are sometimes just a phone call away. Just pick up that phone and make the call. There's no time like the present. What, what a, a gift. gift.